0: partnership. There's a a couple kinds of partnership that come to my mind when I hear that word. Uh, You might think of business partnerships. Uh, You might also think of romantic partnerships. Now, regarding the former business partnerships, these legal contracts and agreements, I remember once an elder in my parents' church talking about trying to uh, buy like a condo or rent a condo or vacation home with a friend of his, and he said, we should get a lawyer to draw up a contract, and the friend said, oh, we're buddies, we don't need a contract. He said, well, if we want to stay buddies, we need a contract. Because he understood that the tensions of financial investment like that might put on the relationship, it was better to have all the parameters and the paperwork in place. Uh, Likewise, we see now uh, the idea of romantic partnerships, which maybe perhaps you've always thought of your, your spouse or your significant other in some way as a partner, But there's actually a phenomenon that's happening in our culture. I I first noticed it when I lived in the United Kingdom of people referring to their significant other as a partner rather than a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiancé or a husband or a wife, saying this is my partner. And I actually talked to a friend of mine. He's doing a master's in sociology at the University of Oklahoma, and he's been studying in his uh, sociology class on the family this idea of partnering, where people are too old, or they think they're too serious to, you know, have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, so instead they say they have a partner, and some of them, that continues, they continue to call the other person a partner, even into marriage, but some of them just have a more serious relationship, and, and, maybe even do things that we might not approve of in terms of cohabitation before marriage or things like that. And they choose not to get married. Rather, they just stay partners. They enter into this relationship because it kind of gives them more freedom and and more equality than they think a traditional marriage might. In both of these cases, the partnership doesn't really exist so that one person can benefit the other. It's more of a selfish thing. I want to benefit myself, and I know that partnering with this person will get me the best results. It's not really about helping them so much as it is about helping me. But that's not the kind of partnership I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about gospel partnership, which has to be entered selflessly. That has to be entered not for the sake of myself, but actually for the sake of the other and we see that gospel partnership requires a few of things of us, but it also results in a few things, and that's what we'll see this morning in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We see that gospel partnership requires service for Christ and his people. The, the letter is written from Paul and Timothy. It says, Servants of Christ Jesus. Now, in many of Paul's letters, he actually identifies himself as an apostle, but here in Philippians, he's writing to a church that he loves dearly, a church that he has a friendship and a relationship with. He, he feels close to them. He feels affectionate about them. So instead of highlighting his authority as apostle, he wants to highlight his service to Christ and to them, a theme that will come up continually in Paul's letter to the Philippians. So he says, Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus. Now, this word servants doesn't just mean people who serve. And we've talked about this before in our church, but that term in the Greek really refers to slaves, to bond servants, people who are more than just people who serve. They're people who are owned by and subservient to a master of a household. Now, this isn't race-based slavery or chattel slavery like we saw in the United States, but it still entailed that one person, one mere human being, owned another. But that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here either, because he's not just saying that they're slaves, he's saying they're slaves of Christ Jesus. They are slaves of Christ, not because they were forced into it, but because As those who were in Christ, they are free indeed. And they freely choose to function in the role of slaves to Christ, recognizing him as their master. In Christ they are free, but they use this freedom not for their own selfish gain, not to become the master of their own domain. They function for Christ as slaves, as a free choice so that they see Christ as their only master and they are subservient to him. It's also important that that Paul starts the letter like this because he's writing to Philippi, which is a Roman colony that had a lot of people who were loyal to Rome and, and even worshipped Caesar. So when he makes the claim that we are servants of Christ, he's also making clear that we are not servants of Caesar. Their only master and Lord is Christ. So this is how the letter starts. Gospel partnership that requires service to Christ alone and to his people. But it also requires participation from all God's people. We see that the letter is written to all the saints in, uh, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now saints, that term in the New Testament refers to God's holy people. It's not some special term for an elite few who have performed a few miracles and are morally pure. It's a term that really refers to all of God's people. All those who have repented and had faith in Jesus Christ are saints. And they're not just saints because they've done so much good or they've done a few miracles. They are saints in Christ Jesus. That means they are saints by Christ Jesus and for Christ Jesus. It is His work that has made them a holy people. It is His work that has made them a holy people, and it is for His work that they do their work in this world. See, a holy uh, the word holy comes from what we describe as God. It, it sometimes just refers to Purity or moral purity, but it also refers to something being set apart to be separate for a particular purpose. So, when we are saints, when we are God's holy people, we are both people who are pure, not because of ourselves, but because of the purity of Christ that was given to us. And we are also set apart for a particular purpose, which is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in our world. It's In this verse, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Not just a few. He doesn't write this letter to some Sunday school class, or to some small group, or to some little ministry within the church. He writes it to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Because this letter isn't meant for a particular audience within the church. It is for the whole church. And this is probably... For two reasons. One, Paul wrote this letter partially in response to a gift they had sent him. So he's wanting to thank the church for that. And it would have probably been the case that the whole church contributed to that gift. So he wants to make sure that they know this letter is for them. But it's also because this letter is not just a report of what Paul has been doing so that they know they're making a good investment in the kingdom. It's also meant to exemplify how they are to live and advance the gospel in Philippi. In fact, this letter is kind of in disguise. It looks like a letter telling them what Paul is doing in Rome, but Paul keeps telling them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He wants them to see the work he is doing to advance the gospel in Rome as the same work they ought to be doing in Philippi. So he wants all the people in the church to be a part of this work. We also see that gospel partnership requires biblical leaders and servants. Among those who are in Philippi, he highlights the overseers and deacons. Now, it's not that he writes the letter to the church and then separately to the overseers and deacons, as if they are some hierarchy that exists outside the church. It is the church he writes the letter to with the overseers and deacons. They are a part of the church. They're not outsiders. They're not above the church. They are integrated into the church itself. Now in the New Testament, the offices of overseer and deacon are tied to the functions they perform. So in the case of deacon, we see that the word literally means servants. So they are those who serve. And in fact, in many churches we would say we want to see people deacon before they are deacons. We want to see them serve before they are called servants. In the same way we want to see overseers oversee. Now the verb for overseer in the Old Testament or sorry in the New Testament means literally to visit, to look after, to care for. We see this in Acts 20 verse 28. Paul is giving an address to the elders from Ephesus, and there he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. He's he's closely tying the, the office of overseer, in fact, he's identifying with elders, The the terms of the New Testament are synonymous. They may have different aspects or connotations, but they are the same office. There's not an overseer and then an elder and then a pastor. There are only overseers who are elders who are pastors. We see this when he talks to the Ephesian elders. He tells them that they have been made overseers over the church in Ephesus. He even uses the language of pastor... In this same verse, he says that they are to pay careful attention to all the flock. A pastor is just a translation that means shepherd. So when we see the flock here used in Acts 20, and we see it in 1 Peter, when it's tied to the idea of elders, we learn that elders are pastors, are overseers, are elders. These are three terms for the same office. In 1 Timothy 3, five, it even identifies elders as those who care for God's church. So we see that elders were uh, responsible for caring for the people. In most cases, uh, senses of that term, including administration, including hospitality, including pastoral care and visitation, including prayer and preaching and teaching. That's what the overseers, the elders, are to do. And unless you think that the office of elder or overseer or pastor is limited to one congregation, not only is it in Ephesus that Paul has Timothy appoint these people, it's also here in Philippi that they have appointed these people. Unless you think it's only in Ephesus or only in Philippi, we see Paul write to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Brothers and sisters, elders, pastors, overseers, that is a biblical office ordained by God. We have no right to tamper with it. We have every right to follow it and to obey it. Now, I know in many churches it looks differently. I'm not saying that if you fail to have a very clearly lined out idea of pastoral ministry in your church, that your, your church is in mortal sin. I'm not saying that. I have lots of friends who are in traditional Baptist churches. They're lead pastors, and they don't have lay elders like we do. They don't have elders who voluntarily are pastors. Instead, the only pastors they have at their church, called by their church, are staff members. They have a lead pastor, they have a worship pastor, they have a youth pastor. But I know very few lead pastors who will admit to me that they're not jealous of churches that do have a plurality of elders. When they're not with their congregation, they'll whisper that. Sometimes they'll say it louder depending on who it is. And even then they'll say, in my church, yeah, I'm the lead pastor, I'm kind of the first among equals, the buck stops with me when it comes to things in the church. But when I make decisions, when I pray for things in the church and I try to seek God's will, I do so with my staff pastors with me. Because even if my church doesn't recognize their authority as full pastors, I do. So we see that gospel partnership requires biblical leaders and servants. And it also requires grace that leads to peace. And if you're paying attention, we're now in verse 2. But if it makes you feel better, the rest are going to go a lot quicker, more or less. In verse 2, we see that Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in a traditional letter in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul was writing, in which the church in Philippi was in, the letter would have been, Sender, Recipient, Greetings. So you can imagine me writing a letter to our church. Chandler to First Baptist of Alcoa. Greetings. But Paul, being Paul, uh, wants to use even the traditional greeting of a Greco Roman letter to do a bit of applied theology. And so in his letters, he tends to elaborate who the sender is. It's not just Paul and Timothy, it's Paul and Timothy who are servants of Christ Jesus. And it's not just to the church in Philippi, it is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And when he gets to the greetings, He Christianizes them further. Because in Greek, just to do a little bit of geeking out here for a minute, the greetings is Karain. and he changes this to charis. So it's changed from greetings into grace. And so instead of saying just simply greetings to you, he says grace to you, and then he adds peace. The idea in the Old Testament of shalom Of wholeness and well-being. So it's grace to you and peace. Now you might see some translations say grace and peace to you. But I don't think that gets what Paul is trying to say. He's saying grace to you and peace. Peace is the result of the grace. In the same way that as we come to Christ, as we repent and believe, we are given God's saving grace to us and that results in peace. Peace with God, peace within ourselves, peace within our world, peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And no, it's not some hippy-dippy peace that some of you experienced in the 70s. I know uh, someone recently mentioned going to Dallas in the 70s uh, for some Jesus hippy peace. But this is the idea of peace, of shalom, of wholeness and well-being, of prosperity. But It's peace that transcends our circumstances. The peace doesn't come because everything around us is good. The peace comes because it is from God. It's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we see that gospel partnership requires service for Christ and his people, participation from all God's people, Biblical leaders and servants and grace that leads to peace. Because you can't be a gospel partner unless you have experienced the gospel. You cannot partner in the gospel before you have received the grace of Jesus Christ that leads to peace. But now we see that gospel partnership results in a few things. And this is where we'll go for verses 3 through 8. Gospel partnership results in thankful prayers. Here in verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He's giving a prayer report, telling them what his prayers have been like. Now, I'll admit, this phrase is actually pretty tricky, and it's not entirely clear what Paul means. Maybe he means every time he thinks of the church in Philippi, he goes, oh God, thank you for the church in Philippi. It may very well be. He's the guy who said pray without ceasing. It's possible. It may also be that he just means that every time that he prays and he gets to talking about the church in Philippi, he is led to give God thanks because he remembers them and remembers how they have partnered with him. We don't 100% know, but either way we know that his prayers for the church in Philippi are thankful prayers. Now, when we're in partnerships that aren't gospel partnerships. sometimes our prayers are not thankful prayers for our partners. Sometimes we can get some of those Old Testament psalms and be praying about uh, some unsavory things for the people that we are partnered with. Praying that God's judgment would fall upon them. And before you think you haven't done that, there's a few of you who have admitted it to me, so I know that sometimes your prayers can be uh, less uh, publicly good. But that's not the point. In, in, in gospel partnerships, in gospel partnership, Paul is able to pray prayers of thankfulness. He's able to give thanks to God for his partners. Because, because not only are they supporting him in advancing the gospel, but he is watching them and encouraging them to advance the gospel. Their partnership is not defined by a contract they wrote up with a lawyer. Their partnership is not defined by some loose allegiance to each other. Their partnership is defined by the fact that they are both in Christ, and that in Christ they support one another. Now, gospel partnerships can be between people within a church, your fellow church members. They can be between different churches, our church and maybe another local church. They can be between a church or an individual in Christ, And a missionary or a missionary team. They can be between even the church members and the church pastors. There's all sorts of gospel partnerships, and you'll know for sure that you're in a gospel partnership when your prayers are thankful for your partners. When we are truly in gospel partnerships, our partners ought to cause us to give thanks to God because they advance the gospel and they support and encourage us in advancing the gospel. Now we see that the Philippians had constantly given Paul gifts. They gave him gifts, uh, he says, when he's defending and confirming the gospel. They're still partnered with him. So when he goes out into cities and defends the gospel, they send him a gift. When he goes into a city and he sees lives transformed, disciples made, souls converted... They send him support. And even when he's in chains in prison, he still receives gifts from them. The whole, the, the, the leading cause of him writing this letter is he is in prison in Rome, and they have sent a gift to support him, and he wants them to know how much he's thankful for it. He wants them to know how he's still advancing the gospel even in his chains, And he wants them to know how they need to be prepared to advance the gospel if they find themselves in chains. And surely they know Paul can advance the gospel in chains. As we saw last week, when he was in Philippi, in jail, he was converting the jailer. So we see that they are making a good investment for the kingdom. We also see that gospel partnership results in Joyful partners. In verses 4 through 5, Paul says, Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, worldly partnerships don't always lead to joy. In fact, sometimes they do the opposite. I saw, uh, y'all may know about this and you may not, I saw it was going around on social media a few weeks ago of one uh, conservative political commentator who I've not really watched before. He came out uh, talking about a contract that he was offered from a a conservative media outlet. And he didn't name who it was, but within 24 hours, a bunch of rumors had been going around online. And finally, the conservative media outlet says, we don't want to do this, but the CEO sits down, and I watched the whole thing. I don't even watch their stuff that much at all. But he sits down for an hour... (laughs) To explain every line of the contract they offered that guy. And then to say that they were pretty hurt about the whole thing. Because they considered him a friend. And because normally in contract negotiations. What happens is. One side offers a contract as a starting point. As a conversation starter. Then the other side sits down with their agent. Or with their lawyers. Figures out what they need to do. And sends it back. And they do that back and forth. Until finally they can come to an agreement. Because again. These legal business partnerships aren't really about serving the other person, even if it does benefit them, which is a good thing, sure. helps everyone to help everyone. But it's really about helping themselves. And so they'll do that back and forth until they both feel like the contract helps themselves. But he didn't do that. He told them they had to start from scratch, and they said, we're not going to be able to offer you probably what you want. And the conversation was over, and then it became public to uh, everyone's great enjoyment or not online, watching all the drama unfold. What's sad, I think, is too often in partnerships that should be based in the gospel and should be advancing the gospel, even within churches, we treat these things like they're contract negotiations because not everyone agrees in here. I guarantee you, my wife is in this room, and even I don't agree with her on 100% of all things. There's no way I'm agreeing with you people, and you're not going to agree with each other Either. So we can't come to a consensus based on agreeing on everything, but too often in the church it feels like one side says, here's what we want, the other side says, here's what we want, and they'll go back and forth until they feel like they've reached a point of unity together. But yeah, unity is what we should strive for, but not like that. Do you know what Christ tells us? He says, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Not by the way that you compromise with one another. You, they will know you are Christians by the love you have for one another. And when we treat each other like business partners who we are trying to take for whatever we can have ourselves, we are not brothers and sisters loving one another. We are using one another. And that's not always our intention. It surely is not. I would not think a single person in this church would think that that's what they want to do. But in reality, that's what we do. When we are unwilling, unwilling to lay down our lives for our brothers, for our sisters. When we love one another, it looks like saying, you know what? I don't want a handbell choir. But... But little Mary over there, she surely does. So when I go to a business meeting, you know what I'm going to fight for? It's going to be a handbell choir. You know, I may not want a praise team with all the lights. But if John over there wants a praise team with all the lights, I'm going to fight for a praise team with all the lights. Why? Not because that's what I want. But it's because that's what they want. And I want to love them. And you know what? Then we have to put our money where our mouth is and actually mean it. Because then we have to sit in the pew with people getting what they want and me not getting what I want and not decide just to go down the church that's down the street. See, when we compromise like we're business partners, you know what happens at the end? There's not a contract. There's not something that's keeping us there. When we don't get 100% what we want and we want it 100%, we leave. That's 100% what we do. But if we were actually to change our own hearts so that I wasn't fighting for what I wanted, but for what everyone else in the room wanted, then perhaps when I don't get my way, I can sit there and love them and stay. Gospel partnership results in joyful partners. Why? Because we're not trying to get the better of them. We're just trying to see them advance the gospel. Gospel partnership also results in assurance of salvation. Paul writes in verses 6 and 7, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel now you may be wondering what is assurance what is assurance of salvation i was trying to think about the best way to put it this morning and i kind of came to the conclusion maybe the best way to think of it is is assurance is something like feeling in your heart and knowing in your head that you were saved knowing with both mind and heart that we are saved by the lord jesus christ I heard someone point out that assurance was really the inciting doctrine, the the doctrine that started the Protestant Reformation. Because if you know much about that story, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk who did not have a whole lot of assurance. In fact, reading his story, to some of you may be very familiar, he was constantly going to confession and trying to seek penance and trying to do good works because he looked at himself and he looked at his heart and he just felt like there was no way He could do enough to be saved. There's no way he could be pennant enough to be saved. So how was he to be saved? And then he sees in Romans, and he sees then in Galatians, that we are made right with God through faith alone. In this scripture this morning, Paul does not claim to know, he does not claim to know that the Philippians are saved and they will be saved on the day of Christ Jesus, the day in which Jesus returns and brings his kingdom fully and finally to earth. He does not claim to know that because he has some secret knowledge from God. Because God only knows at the end who will be saved. But instead he looks to the external evidence of the Philippians. In in Philippians 4.15 he says, When he left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. When he left, only the Philippian church from Macedonia supported him. In verse 16, there in chapter 4, he points out that when he left from Philippi to Thessalonica, which was the immediately next place he went, that they already sent him help for his needs once and again. And we know what kind of heart the church in Philippi had, because if we go back to Acts 16 like we did last week, we see that as soon as Lydia, the first convert in Philippi, was brought to Christ, she offered her home to the missionary team to stay in. From the first day of their being in Christ to now, they have been consistent and constant in supporting Paul. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, he says, We want you to know, brothers, this is him writing to Corinth, "...about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part." They were giving abundantly to Paul, even though they were poor. They were giving abundantly to the offering for the saints in Jerusalem, even though they were poor. And we know that he's talking about Philippi because in chapter four he says that no church in Macedonia had partnered with him except for them. This church in Philippi had shown this evidence of wanting the gospel advanced because they were people who had been transformed by the gospel. If you go down to Springbrook Park, there's a little sidewalk. And as you walk down the sidewalk, there are blue, really ugly, painted blue letters on the sidewalk. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And and one day, me and Molly were walking and we kind of figured maybe it's for the trees because they're in front of the trees. And then she pointed out that she noticed the other day that there's actually a QR code that you can scan with your phone and it'll play a little audio and you can walk down the sidewalk and it'll tell you about each of the trees. I thought that's genius because I know nothing about trees. And if I were to try to identify a tree, I would need someone in my ear telling me what it was. I mean, I kind of know that that's kind of a pine tree. kind of know that's kind of an oak or a cedar tree or whatever. The only trees I really actually have confidence in are trees where they have fruit on them. And when I see a tree with fruit on it, I have a pretty good idea of what kind of tree it is, it turns out. And when I see an apple tree, I know that it's an apple tree. When I see pears hanging, I know it's a pear tree and so on and so forth. It's a crazy idea, I know. But that's exactly how Paul assesses what the root of the uh, Christians in Philippi is. He sees the fruit. He sees what kind of fruit they bear. And he sees that they are a giving church, and they not only just give generically because it's a tax write-off, they give when they're in poverty, and they give to gospel advancement, not generically to just doing some good in another place. They give to Paul and to the saints in Jerusalem because they know that's where the gospel is being advanced. So he says, you know why I know that your roots are in Christ? Because you do Christ-like things. So he says to them, I am sure of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this. Gospel partnership results in assurance of salvation. And finally, gospel partnership results in Christ-like affection. He says in verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all but the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul actually says, For God is my witness because he's about to tell them the state of his heart. And Paul, I'm sure, knew Jeremiah 17 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the answer in Jeremiah is only the Lord. So Paul, when he's going to tell them what his heart is for them, he calls upon God as his witness. And he tells them that he yearns for them, he desires, he wants to see them with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You may not always feel it, but Christ loves you deeply. He loves you despite the fact that you're not perfect. He loves you despite the fact that you may not be as pretty as someone else. He loves you despite the fact that you're not as smart as somebody else, that you're not as talented as somebody else, that you're not as privileged as somebody else. He loves you despite that. He loves you as much as he loves the person next to you. And so when Paul says, I love you with the affection of Jesus Christ, my heart is full of affection towards you, he is saying to everyone there, To Lydia, the first convert, I love you as much as I love the overseers. He's telling the pastors, I love you as much as the deacons. And he's telling the deacons, I love you as those two knuckle-headed women who I love dearly, Euodia and Syntyche, which we'll come to in a few weeks. I love you as much as them. I love you as much as I love Epaphroditus, who almost gave his life for the gospel. I love you as much as Timothy, which you know he is a good man. I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is not limited by any circumstance, it is not less because of anything in you. It is the full affection of Christ Jesus I have for you. And I hope, I hope dearly, that in the past this church has had people who look back to our church and thank God in every remembrance of us because of the gospel partnership they had with us. I hope they look back and they say, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And I hope, I hope and I believe that is what will happen Again and again and again. If we would be committed to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that God, despite our sin, loved us. And he sent his son, Christ Jesus, to live a sinless life. And to die a death that he did not deserve. In which he took on the sin of the world. And that he was raised from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us on our behalf, praying for us on our behalf, waiting, just waiting to return. I hope that our commitment to the gospel and our commitment to be good gospel partners with others, fulfilling those requirements and resulting in those results, I hope that is the future of our church. And the partnership that we primarily see with Philippi, is that they were continually sending financial support and gifts to the church. Now here, I'm not going to give you all some pitch on tithes and offerings. You all know about all that. What I am going to tell you is that if you feel so led above your tithes and offerings, uh, we are taking up a love offering this month, for the remainder of the month, for one of our church members, Matt Dill. And many of you know that he's been undergoing cancer treatment, and it's been very difficult for him and his family and that uh, we as a church decided uh, that one of the things we want to do for them is take up a love offering to help offset not only the cost, but also the cost of him not being able to work during this time to provide for his family. So when we pass the offering plates around, or if you want to put it in the boxes in the back, feel free to contribute to that. And also recognize that uh, when we contribute to things like that, uh, we're not just giving financially, we are partnering with people. And as we partner, we not only do it with our finances, but we do it with our very hearts, offering ourselves to them like Christ offered himself to us. Let's pray.